Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, a lot of commodity strategists are telling folks, particularly on the East Coast, to get ready to pay more for gas. And it's not just because we're going into the summer driving season. It's because we're going to have a supply problem here. Colonial Pipeline shut down. And that uh, pipeline supplies most of the East Coast. And let's get the latest on that. We're uh, pleased to have Jay Hatfield. He's the founder and CEO of Infrastructure Capital Management. Jay, thanks so much for joining us here. And again, you look at the map of the Colonial Pipeline, and boy, it just goes right up the eastern seaboard, suggesting that the folks you know on the East Coast are really going to have some supply issues. What do you think? How do you think this is going to develop? Great. Well, thanks for having me on. Well, one thing that's important to note <coughs> about um, products pipelines is that they can um, be transported using surface transportation. So, in other words, barges. <coughs> um, uh, rail and truck, so we would we were expecting a fairly muted response, which is what we're getting so far. So, in fact, if you want to look on the terminal CRCK, you're only seeing about a uh, 35 cent uh, increase in the gasoline crack to New York Harbor, which makes sense because, of course, <clears throat> that can be supplied by European uh, refineries. Where what we walk can't us see walk right us through Jay the the crack spread. What is that? So it's just it's the profitability of refining um, oil into um, gasoline in this in this case. <clears throat> and so what we're not seeing on their screens, oil's a little bit weak, and and Arbob or the New York Harbor's um, moving up just a tiny bit. But what you can't see on the screens is areas that um, are less liquid, and there's no, there's no trading. But for instance, in Tennessee and landlocked south eastern states. So there, you're likely to get some increase, but it's going to be capped just by shipping or um, transportation cost. So other than maybe a few cases of hoarding, we don't expect any significant shortages. But I think it does point out the vulnerability of the um, energy infrastructure. And in particular, um, more sensitive systems are obviously electricity and to a lesser degree natural gas, which is what you saw in Superstone Uri, where when you have uh, the electric market goes out, it tends to shut down other things like natural gas production, whereas refined products, like as I mentioned, can be um, shipped uh, using alternative methods. Jay, what do you think the issue here is? I mean, it, do you have any sense for the duration of this shutdown? And, and, and is there a point where it really does become a supply problem? Well, the, the, it's it's the the key issue is um, safety. So to the extent that the hack gets into the operational software and and you have explosive fuels, it's not like just bringing up a regular computer system. So it it's not exactly clear how long it could go. But again, it's other than some potential for hoarding, it shouldn't be like when the refinery shut down in a hurricane. We have an actual supply problem. It's just a logistics issue. So it, can, it caps the the um, potential shortage uh, by the fact that you can just move the product from different refineries, either 
in the U.S. or overseas. So we don't really see this as a, a, a catastrophe, just perhaps some localized shortages. I've been trying to figure out all day in terms of the nature of the commodities market, why can't we price in um, something like a demand shock or a production squeeze ahead of the forecast, ex ante, so to speak? It doesn't seem like, you know, if we all knew oil was going to be at 80 by the end of the year, why wouldn't it go to 80 now? Well, <clears throat> what tends to happen with commodity markets is they develop momentum, either downward or upward momentum. We saw the downward momentum last year, and we had negative $40 oil. So usually um, they t- tend to build, and they're not going to really have that um, spike until we really see the demand. Specifically, what we're watching is uh, Europe. So <clears throat> Europe is about a month behind the U.S. in terms of vaccinations. So we're really predicting global travel get and if they do catch up, as we're expecting. And uh, just the nature of commodity markets, they don't, they don't, they're not really good at anticipation. So it'll sort of happen when it happens. Jay, real quick, 30 seconds. Kind of what's your call for oil here? We got WTI crude here at $64.50. Where do you think it is year end? Um, we think that it'll, it'll trade in the $70 to $80 range with the potential for a super spike. And the real reason behind that is um, what we're calling OPEC++, which is constraint of the U.S. producers, mostly due to the capital markets. So we think that'll drive prices higher than they've been since 2014, because ever since 2014, the U.S. has been the swing producer. But now the, the companies have moved to being more value-type uh, stocks, so they're not going to ramp up production, which gives us chance for prices to move higher. With If there is a supply disruption, um, not so much just a transportation disruption, we could see you know a, a possibility of a super spike, uh, during, right. particularly during the summer. All right, Jay, thanks so much for joining us. Jay Hatfield there, CEO and founder of Infrastructure Capital Management. Let's get over right now to Will Rind. He's the founder and CEO of Granite Shares. They have over $1.5 billion of assets under management. At the end of last year, they had that, and I'm sure they've been adding to them. Will, um, it's it's a fairly striking move that I'm looking at right now in oil because, um, you know, the latest stories all say oil climbs with gasoline as cyber attack knocks out U.S. pipeline. We know that was the hot story of the uh, of the weekend. But now all of a sudden I see uh, Brent crude and NYMEX WTI just coming down hard. I mean, the move is over a dollar in Brent in the last half hour alone. What's going on? Yeah, morning. Um, I wouldn't make too much of the sort of short-term move this morning because obviously we had um, a big move over the last few days, more broadly, you know, this year. Um, but I think we could be reacting a little bit in terms of an overshoot over the news of the, the pipeline attack um, that we saw, you know, heading into into the weekend. All right. So, Will, I'm looking at my on my Bloomberg terminal, GLCO, Global Commodity Prices. Um, I'm seeing 20, 30, 50% increases when I look at en- on, on a year-to-date basis, increases when I look at energy, metals, agricultural. What are we seeing here? Is this simply, you know, just the bounce back play or is this something more structural in commodities going forward? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's more structural. I think that this is a new super cycle um, that has started, um, but is now uh, in sort of full-blown uh, mode here. Uh, and, and the reason is kind of twofold, that there's no doubt that there are some bounce-back plays kind of going on here. I mean, clearly we had you know, a hugely depressed situation last year for commodity demand. Um, that is obviously coming back as the world returns to somewhat of a normal mode, but mobility basically increasing. And so we have uh, record highs now in copper. We have iron ore at highs. We have steel prices on the rise. Honestly, all the energy complex rising as well. And, and that, that's understandable because that is the same theme as we're seeing with some of the, the pandemic uh, equity stocks that were badly affected last year. But I think what's less talked about is, in my mind, the kind of the, the bigger picture here. And that is that there's been woeful underinvestment in the commodity sector for many, many years. And that's because of depressed prices um, since the last uh, peak of the last super cycle, you know, around 2008. So with this underinvestment, this underinvestment is now colliding with this huge surge in demand, causing, in my mind, a new super cycle. And I think this is a super cycle that's not going to affect all commodities uniformly. Um, but as we transition as a world to a green energy infrastructure, we're, we're moving away from hydrocarbons and we're moving to a green energy sustainable future that is creating and will create super cycle in many commodities. Um, that are stand to benefit most from this energy transition. Well, I mean, uh, it's not hard to, to to believe that. And uh, frankly, we were hearing, I've heard similar things from others in, in the market. I was talking to Jeff Curry today from Goldman Sachs, um, and I think he would agree. Well, I, what I don't really get is why, what's it, what is it about the commodity market that means you can't price in a demand shock and that kind of underinvestment ex ante? Why, why can't um, investors really get ahead of these things, you know, very early? Well, I think that investors can um, get ahead of it. I mean, it's, it's one of these things where, you know, right now you have, uh, in my mind, a very, um, you know, interesting phenomenon where commodities are outpacing equities. So when you have commodities outperforming stocks, that's typically, at least historically, that's a harbinger um, of you know, higher inflation. That's not necessarily good news for stocks. Um, we've had an environment where commodities have underperformed equities uh, for well, pretty much since the last, uh, since the peak of 2008 peak. Um, so in my mind, this is you know, something that is real um, for and a lot of investors hold commodities uh, strategically in a portfolio anyway for diversification reasons. Um, and so in this particular environment, I think people are moving into commodities in a way that I certainly haven't seen for a number of years to try and hedge themselves against these inflationary risks that we're seeing. Will Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your thoughts. Will Ryan, he's the founder and CEO of Granite Shares, giving us thoughts here about uh, commodities. You know, again, the question for a lot of folks is, uh, you know, is this transitory? Are we seeing some of these gains in um, commodity prices and therefore inflation as something that the Federal Reserve would like to argue uh, are transitory issues, maybe, you know, going to the base effect where you're going off a of very, very easy comps? Or is there something more to this in terms of maybe, as uh, Will was suggesting, a super cycle 
in commodity prices, which may uh, bring some troubling inflation uh, back into the economy. So uh, investors across the board are certainly paying attention to the commodity markets. Now let's talk about getting access to private companies. There is a trading platform called Forge that allows investors to access private markets uh, and allows shareholders and investors in privately held firms to liquidate a portion of their shares ahead of IPOs or, uh, you know, SPAC um, combinations. Kelly Rodriguez joins us, the CEO of Forge. Kelly, tell us about your company, your platform, and what kind of growth you've seen in in this year of so much activity? Yeah, sure. Thank you guys for having me on. Um, this has been a very big year post uh, peak of the pandemic. We've seen uh, the numbers expand dramatically. We reported that we've just concluded the third record quarter in a row in terms of liquidity and volume on uh, on Forge. I think we uh, have also seen recently that we closed the acquisition of our largest competitor, SharesPost, and that created really a, a central ecosystem player in Forge for anybody that wants to buy or sell, um, that wants data, or who wants to custody their assets. So we're really trying to create something for the broad market. All right, Kelly, talk to us about SPACs. That's, you know, I've been in the investment business for over 30 years, and SPACs is the growth of SPACs over the past 12 to 18 months has really got my attention. It's just exploded. It's always kind of been out there, but it's just really exploded over the last uh, 12 months or so. How has that impacted the liquidity event for uh, a lot of investors who might have typically used your platform uh, to sell stock and get some liquidity? Well, so two things. Interestingly, the SPACs are creating additional liquidity on Forge. So okay. if a company has announced, such as Payoneer, uh, you can find, buy and sell that SPACing company before it's de on Forge. So it is bringing a whole nother uh, level of liquidity for companies that aren't as big as the previous sort of trend in pre-IPO unicorns. You know, if you take a look at the companies that have been going public through direct listings or through a conventional IPO the last couple of years, these companies are between nine and a hundred billion dollar valuation companies in the private market. There's about six hundred and twenty unicorns. But the SPACs are coming out and filling a market interest in the sort of low single digit billions. And so really it just looks like um, an alternative form of going public. I do think there's been a lot of hype around this the last year and you're gonna to start to see it settle down and more of a move to quality. What have been the most popular shares traded on your platform? I mean, pre-IPO, you know, private companies that I guess employees um, have have shares in and need liquidity, so they put them out there. What do you where do you see the most action? I mean, we have about four hundred companies that have traded on the platform, uh, but the most action is in a company that's a large cap private that's going to be public in the next ninety days. So think Palantir. Back in Q3, we did about $500 million of Palantir volume alone. Asana, uh, if you look at any of the companies that have gone out, Airbnb, just before they go, everybody wants a piece of that uh, that pre-IPO company because they know it's going to be liquid. It's just a matter of the next sort of 60 to 90 days to get through their process. Kelly, give us a sense of how the 
VC and private equity world uh, has, you know, kind of evolved over the past 14 months as we dealt with this pandemic, because ultimately, you know, those investors come to you to get liquidity. What have you seen in terms of, you know, kind of that, that VC market? Well, I'm glad you're asking that question. We brought something to market uh, a little bit earlier last quarter that was called Forge Company Solutions. And this really is meant to primarily serve and put uh, the control back into the company and the VCs that back them around how they're raising primary or secondary capital. And this is a really important thing because these companies are now staying private for so long, the employee bases and the venture capital funds who have seven to 10 year lives are extending beyond the life of their fund and beyond the vesting schedule of their employees. So they need liquidity, they need capital uh, to last and to go 10 to 15 years. I think Palantir was a 15 to 17 year old company when it finally went. So they're embracing this because look, it's an employee benefit. You're gonna work for a company for 10 years privately and you need liquidity to pay for a house or send your kids to college. I think Forge is the platform that puts that company and that VC in control to manage that. So um, when you look at the public markets, um, what difference do you think a Forge makes in terms of the way the public markets then evolve? Well, it's interesting. There's some definite blurring of the lines in the last few years. If a company can stay private longer and raise the kind of capital that you're seeing now happen, and you're seeing rounds in the several hundred million, rounds that are the size of what an IPO used to look like 10, 15 years ago, a company can stay private longer and really set a different path in terms of strategic investing, longer-term value. And so the, the dynamic of being public really creates a different shorter-term quarterly dynamic around the shareholding uh, and the objectives of the company. And many managers and, and, and CEOs of private companies, myself included, want to have the ability to invest long-term. And if you've right. got capital available to you in the private markets, you're going to stay private longer. Kelly Rodriguez, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we always appreciate chatting with you. Kelly Rodriguez, he's a CEO of Forge, giving a sense of how you know in, private investors are looking for liquidity in some of these venture-backed and private uh, equity-backed firms. As they wait longer and longer to go uh, public, they're able to uh, trade their shares, their private shares, on the private market, and Forge does that. This is Bloomberg. Now, I want to bring in George Bailey right now. He's a portfolio manager of IG Credit at Aviva Investors. And, George, let's let's start just by talking about the issuance. It's been insane. I think I read a little bit earlier that issuance at this point uh, in the year is the second highest we've seen it since 2010. Um, is this just companies that want to get out and get some money in a low-rate environment? Do they see it rising soon? Yeah, I, I think that is a big part of it. Um, I mean, we're 27% behind the pace we saw last year. But yeah, you're right. If you go back to previous years, we're about almost 40% ahead of the 2019 pace. So I, I think that is a big part of it. If, if you're a corporation and you expect high yields going forward, uh, it makes sense just to issue debt today, especially if you're trying to refinance front-end debt rolling off and then issue longer-term debt. That just makes more sense. George, what do you make of it when a company like Amazon announces a, 
a bond offering today, and we, we don't know the amount yet. That's not been disclosed. But, you know, they got a gajillion dollars of cash on the balance sheet. They, they spew incredible amounts of free cash flow. They have no real use for the proceeds. What's it tell you when an Amazon.com uh, comes to your market? Yeah, we've seen a few deals this year, and even last year, actually, after the you know the, after the pandemic in sort of April, May sort of time, um, where you do see big corporations that don't necessarily need to issue debt; they have the cash on their balance sheet, um, but they do it because, like you said, it's just cheap financing for them. Um, so if they can raise the money via the debt markets, then it just makes sense and have that cash as a buffer on the balance sheet. Uh, now, now that being said, that is part of what we're looking at. So. When they issue debt and you raise cash in your balance sheet, it's, it's as a credit investor, you're really asking, what are they doing with that cash? Um, are they giving it back to the shareholders? Are they engaging the M&A? So, so really, that is the focus going forward. What are you doing as a credit investor? I mean, what, what moves can you make right now with fresh money? Can you, can you find value out there um, or can you only hope to, I guess, preserve your capital? Yeah, valuation's tough. It doesn't matter what asset class you're in at the moment. It seems valuations are tough to come by. Uh, there, there are pockets of investment grade we like, so banking in particular. Uh, they've just got done a lot of supply, and we got that out of the way. So, so that's nice. And then also telecom, too. So with those big supply overhangs out the way, we do see value there further out the curve. Um, but, yeah, also in high yield as well. If you look at triple B, so the lower part of investment grade quality versus Say double B's, the higher quality part of the high yield market, uh, we do see value there in, in the front end where you're, you're picking yield is, is worth it for a similar risk profile, similar fundamentals, just dipping down into that high yield space. George, talk to us about credit quality here. We're 14 months into this pandemic and the economic shock that it, it caused. Are you seeing material deterioration in certain parts of uh, the portfolio? Not really. The, f the fundamentals are holding up, and I think that will be the case going forward, at least over the near future, while the, the macro backdrop remains strong. Um, so while we have sort of the dovish duo with, with Yellen and Powell and, and then just the macro factors coming through, we have a few prints coming this week uh, with retail sales and, and other points. I think if, if the macro backpitch should just stay strong, I, I don't think we'll see many cracks in the fundamentals. The other big part of it as well, the markets will just remain open. I mean, what you've been talking about there, just the amount of supply we've seen this year. If, if, if the markets remain open and corporations can do that, then that really just keeps the fundamentals strong. So it's no really cracks to speak of at a moment, and, and default rates also remain pretty manageable. I guess visibility is good as long as um, vaccinations continue to increase, right? That's got to be the, key, uh, the keystone of the economic recovery. Yeah, and we've seen a lot of credit strategists point to those sort of data points now. It's, it's not just looking at the fundamentals of corporations. It's, okay, let's look at the vaccine rollout. Let's look at the cases. Let's look at hospital beds. Um, so it's all different data points now. It isn't just the fundamentals of a corporation. All right, George, uh, the Fed has signaled lower for longer, yet there are some inflation pressures. What are you baking into your base case as to the Fed's uh, moves? Yeah, we're starting to see that come through a bit in the data, these inflationary pressures. And you only need to look at, say, commodity prices over the last six months or so. And they've doubled to quadrupled in some places. We've seen that come through there. And then we started to see it a bit on, on Friday's non-farm payrolls report. 
um, some wage inflation coming through. So, yeah, it, it's definitely a concern. I think if it stays around sort of the 3% level where the Fed wants to see inflation growth but not, you know, out of hand, um, I think that is good for just global growth and we could see yields move a bit higher. Um, but I think we need to just look at some more data points and going forward, see if this really is trans- transitory or, or whether it could just be more sustained. George, I wonder, you're a CFA. How much harder do you think it is to get now than when, when Paul took the test? <laughs> well, it was much harder back then, you know. Of course. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had to, we had to go walk uh, uphill both ways to get to the, to the testing site. Uh, I, anyway, I, aren't they making it more difficult now? I don't know. I don't know if they are. Um, it's certainly it's going all digital. I know that 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 that's the big change. So uh, make it changing with the times. George Bailey, thanks so much for joining us there. George Bailey, he's a portfolio manager covering the investment grade market for Aviva Investors, getting his thoughts on, on these markets here. Credit quality holding in there. Fundamentals remain solid. The Fed remains on the sideline. The search is for yield. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.